0: most original and creative talent in our business would you welcome mr orson wells ladies and gentlemen orson wells again come to call for another visit good evening this is orson wells Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses.
1: All right, Uh J'lo again, this is Buck Benny speaking. I am joined with Kathy Fuller-Seely today. We are here to bring you a really interesting episode of Orson Welles. I, uh, I love it in that I didn't listen to this one ahead of time be- beforehand, um, like I, I usually do. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, I listened to it before. I've listened to it. Let me put it that way. But uh, I talked last week, I think, or the week before, about how he has, like, these packed shows that have all kinds of subject matter. And then maybe the next week he'll have one that's just focusing on, like, one issue. Well, um, we recently have had just really packed, packed shows with with tons of information. And so I was feeling in my heart, I was going, okay, it's about time for a single-issue show, and boom, here we are. Uh, This issue focuses probably more than any other show and it's almost done like a radio show in itself like a like a self-contained like almost a a scripty road or whatever because you have a he's gonna you'll hear right at the beginning there's a ticking that goes through the whole thing like a ticking time bomb it's supposed to be of course and this whole episode focuses on um the the atomic bomb and 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 what might happen uh with that he goes into the politics of it. He he covers a lot of ground within that, but it's all within the, um, the the bomb and that sort of thing. And at the very end, he says why he did it. He says essentially, there's a woman who wrote a letter that's asking him about about World War Three, and this is sort of his answer to that. And a brilliant show of of all the shows we've we've shown probably you get the most passion coming from him on this subject. He is wor- truly worried about that a world might not continue. Uh, and certainly one of these shows that resonates today because you feel like you're in that same boat. We've said that many times with his shows, but this one probably more than most. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we feel like that ticking time bomb is as much atomic or nuclear devastation as it is say, Uh, climate change and and destroying earth that way but uh still uh i was telling kathy before we got on the air here that uh, i think orson would have been completely surprised if you said how many countries had nuclear capability now and asked him in these 75 years since if, if you go forward 75 years do you think someone will have used a bomb and i think in knowing how many countries would have it in the future i think he would have said oh unfortunately definitely i can't imagine that they wouldn't and yet we're the only country that's really used the bomb everybody else has uh, had has them but as kathy was telling me they come close but anyway what are your kind of thoughts on this amazing episode kathy well, I,
2: um, I agree with you absolutely daryl this one took me back almost physically to that moment this is march seventeenth, 1946 the war in Europe has been over for 11 months, um, but uh, we see the happy images about the end of World War II right. with, so, with sailors kissing nurses and parades and happy, happy, and now we're going to go build suburbs and have a prosperous 50s. That is the easy way. We've won World War II, and now we're going to Disneyland, kind of stories about the end of the war, and this episode so viscerally takes us back to the absolute terror that was actually going on at the time yes we've won the war but oh my god you know this suddenly we're into this whole new thing and it's not in our control um the way he pitches that his anger at winston churchill and in rattling sabers against russia and he's trying to say but but the, the nice russian people so you know that's a but but then there's What is going on is that Stalin and Churchill are vying for, um, uh, 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 you know, I mean, for world power too. He is so, again, it, it amazed me that he was so negative about the British. Given our long time relationship, but when he says, "Hey um, uh, Churchill, what about the millions of enslaved peoples you've got in your colonial country? You know, why why are you asking us to back you as right. opposed to you know right. the Russians?" He's sort of really laying it out, um, as in sort of see trying to see both sides of the issue, and it is not something that American politicians are going to let him do for much longer uh, uh he, he's raises these incredible fears very rightly so about the the time bomb is ticking we could all die you know this is this huge bomb and we don't even really know yet but he hints then about the things about the um children still dying from radiation yeah, and you know that was really so powerful to me
1: when thing. he said about yeah. uh, he po- and i've never heard anybody really point that out at the time And he's like, children are still dying from this bomb that we did a long time ago. It's been a while, and they're still getting sick and dying from
2: this. Well, that's because the military didn't want us to know. Nobody really knew at the time the bomb was dropped what its long-term effects would be. And the military very much, the happy Adam, the peaceful Adam, you know, this is. But it was John Hershey, a journalist, going over, and he wrote a a multi-part magazine piece called Hiroshima which went back about this time and said, do you know how the people are suffering? Skin yes. still falling up, devastation. The, you know that's, you don't ever want to use one of these things again. And he said, And Orson has captured um, all of that so much. And um, he's still sort of rooting for President Roosevelt. Um, sort of FDR is over his shoulder saying, let's honor him by doing the right thing. But he's, he's terrified and he's laying it all out to try and make Americans think.
1: Yeah. About it. It so. definitely uh, forces people to think uh, you would think at the time, listen to this. And even today it makes you think a little bit uh, on a side lighter note for this thing. First off, I want to uh, tell you that when you hear the beginning of this episode, you're going to go, oh, my goodness, the sound quality is not what we're used to at all because it's not very good Mm. at the beginning but it within two minutes or something it gets quite a bit better it's still not as good as the sound quality we're used to on this show I don't know where this source comes from it sounds like it's different than our usual source because it certainly isn't of the caliber of our usual source but I'm so glad we have it instead of just losing it because of sound quality and like I say it's very listenable don't worry about that it'll it'll clear up and it'll be just fine Um, the other piece I want to point out is I sort of when I was listening to and looking at the time when it came out and thinking to myself boy the sponsor had to really sit back and bite their tongue on this one and just gonna kind of go, go eh, he's in charge it's his commentary we're just going to go yeah. with it because it would be so tempting to go so orson you know this is coming out on saint patrick's day why don't you talk about <laughs> leprechauns and do a little story? We'd love to hear your voice narrating a leprechaun story. I think our audience would love that. And you can talk about nuclear disaster some other week. Okay. But, why? Okay. <laughs> but Orson is like, I don't care if it's St. Patrick's Day. I'm going for it. And he just goes for it um, in a way that in the whole series so far, I mean, <laughs> every, the, the audience is going, Boy, every few weeks they say this over and over again. How this episode is like the ultimate episode or whatever. But for me, he's never gone as passionate as he has in this episode. He really lays it on the wall. I think he was just terrified that we're going to end the planet, and and he's like, we have got to get a handle on this. We've got to. I love the fact that he still resonates today. Of I can't do anything about this. You can't do anything about this. We can solve this. We can 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 do this if we get together and the people speak up, the people have the power. And that is still true, of course, today and forevermore, that if we all get together and decide we're going to do something, we can get it done. And I think that that is a very powerful message for the time for today, for any day. I mean, I think it's great. I, I, I just, I cannot tell you how much I enjoy this episode and how much I um, am terrified by this episode, but also just the way he presents it. Only Orson could pull something like this off the, the, he, he could write and beautifully and he does write beautifully here. He could, he could narrate it beautifully and he does. And, um, in a terrifying way. And the ticking was a a great added piece that at times he really plays on the ticking and and really uses that to emphasize his points and just a, just a great show. Um, Kathy, you have anything else to add about this episode? Oh,
2: no, thanks. I've been, I I keep speaking about things that I've just got to play for my students. This is one I've just got to play for uh, uh, students to sort of understand that, um, uh, the how dire the situation right. was, as I said, at a time in which some basic history books just want to talk about, as I said, uh, the U.S. feeling like it's just time to celebrate. And there were so many things to worry about. Right. So,
1: Well, and I will use this moment to just kind of mourn what folks have missed out on for 75 years. Uh, we are probably going to be presenting this to more people that have heard it since 19 uh since since 1946 when it was originally aired this is was one of the episodes as far as i can tell that was lost to time for the last 75 years and just discovered along with a lot of these episodes wearing that we're in the part of the series where i don't think any of these in the upcoming number of weeks or months have been played anywhere for for decades and decades well for seven decades or more and uh the fact that we get a chance to enjoy these, we get a chance to experience these um, and be impacted by by Orson in this way, I think is just a, a wonderful thing. I think Orson would be so happy that we're presenting this to people to get out there to the largest audience we can. Uh, in fact, this particular episode, I think it's worthy of airing on all of my podcasts. So I think I'm going to air it on all three of my podcast networks just because... It is such an amazing piece of history um, and one that's been lost for many, many, many decades, as I say. And I'm just so happy that Kathy can join me when I, uh, we, we were originally just doing Jack Benny together. And then when I got, when I started listening to these episodes and thinking about them and knowing Kathy's uh, history background, I just thought I have to at least let her see which if she wants to do these with me.
2: And, I- and they're marvelous because I certainly hadn't known about them before. Yeah. And it's sort of revelatory. It's it's like finding, you know, a, um, this amazing lost you are there document.
1: Yeah, this, um, is, this is one of the great finds in old time radio history, I, I think. Because it, if we'd done this three years ago, you and I would have sat down and we would have talked about about 10 of these episodes is all we would be able to present. Certainly this one wouldn't have been there. It would have been some of the ones we already covered in things, but, and it would have been great. But now we can talk about sixties uh, ish of wow. these episodes that exist. And, and uh, week after week, we can meet and chat about them and, and he brings on so many different subjects and it gets you to understand what people were going through at that time. And so often, like this one, bridges over 75 years into our time and we're still dealing with that issue and still needing to to do it. I mean, the big news uh, the last couple of weeks or whatever was that the arms treaty between the United States and Russia had just gotten re-upped and, and, and things. And they want to expand it, which I think is fabulous that they try and expand it uh the big th- thing is making sure that each side honors what they say they're going to do because that so often doesn't happen but certainly it's a move in the right direction and i think orson would applaud any treaties we can do that are nuclear uh treaties to stop the nuclear proliferation and everything i think that's something that this show uh would definitely push in and everything and, yeah. and so forth but uh without further ado uh, enjoy Orson in this amazing, amazing piece. And Kathy, so glad you could join me on this. Um,
2: uh, thank you so much, dear.
1: You're welcome. And we'll see all of you guys next week and every week for Orson Wells. If you're listening to this on one of my other podcasts, it's usually on my Judy Garland and Friends because we believe that Orson might have been a friend of Judy Garland. We're not sure, but <laughs> it's 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 my oh, it's my catch-all for famous people, and Orson definitely qualifies as a famous person like Judy was, so in his own way. So enjoy
0: the American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles' In his own personal, individual analysis of the news, sharpened into brilliant word pictures by his extensive traveling, plus his keen perception. Do you hear something? Something ticking? Listen. A ticking sound. Hear it? Listen very carefully. If your kids are reading the comics, get them to listen with you for a while. Could be the ticking of a time bomb. One of the 1946 models with a wonderful new atomic feature. Notice, please, the streamlined wilderness. Yes, I said wilderness. That was once a city full of people. You ladies will be especially interested in the little children who are still slowly dying. That goes with it. A time bomb, yes, it might be. You do hear it now, don't you? The bomb, I'm holding it in my hands. You're in this radio studio. The same bomb you hold in your hands as you listen in or tune me off. The bomb you take with you to church or to the golf course. Same thing that ticks away the time as you make plans for the afternoon. Could be a time bomb. Could be the noise the world makes as it winds itself up and gets ready to explode. Oh, that's Orson Welles, you see, on the radio. He's doing another one of those broadcasts about the end of the world, trying to scare the people. Yes, this is Orson Welles. Yes, this is just a broadcast. You can laugh it off as a joke, but you can't laugh off that bomb. Neither can I. It's here to stay. The question is, are we? Are we here to stay? Can we live in the same universe with the infernal thing? That bomb, if it only stopped ticking, I could talk to you about pleasanter things, tell you about the new show that opened on Broadway, talk about a book or a concert or a prize fight or a party. You know, human interest. But just now I think what interests humans, most humans, is one awful question. When's that thing going to go off? Is there any human way of keeping this planet from skidding off into nowhere and never was? What's the price of peace? The great pacifist who was a great war president, Woodrow Wilson, said... ...the right is more precious than peace. Well, who's in the right? The left or is the right right? It's all so mixed up. Let's forget about it. I'll play your a hand of gin rummy. Except you can't think about the cards the bomb gets in your way. What price will you pay for peace? You. You, Russia. What price will you pay? What I must pay, says Russia, no more. I'll pay what I have to pay. I will appease the English further, in Greece and Indonesia. For peace, I will even consent to live in the same world with the British Empire, says Russia. Very nice of you, says Britain, really, Russia. You do have your gall. It's as though we said we consented to live in the same world with you. You did, you did say so, says literal-minded Russia. You said it in San Francisco, California. And then you took it back in Fulton, Missouri. We will live with you, says liberal-minded Britain. The orator who said we can't spoke from the political dustbin... I beg your pardon, says Missouri, political dustbin. Oh, no, no, not you, Missouri, says liberal-minded Britain. No, no, Missouri. Mr. Churchill has his own portable political dustbin. He carries it around with him wherever he goes and scatters his own private dust in the wind. His Tory friends call that clearing the air. We gave him the merry old heave-ho, remember? We tossed him out in his Tory ear, and by a spanking good majority, Mr. Churchill doesn't speak for us. If he can't get votes, he'll settle for headlines, says Britain. Now let's get back to the main argument. Why don't you Russia? Get out of Iran. Says Russia, why don't you, Britain, get out of Greece? Says America, why don't you, Russia, get out of China? Says Russia, why don't you, America, get out of China? Says America, that's my question. I asked it first. Says Russia, why not answer it first? Says America, get out of China after you, Ivan. And says Russia with some irony, no, no, America first. America first? F. Ferguson filibuster takes the floor. America first? Cries the senator, who said that? Uh, that was the USSR. USSR? Another one of them blame government agencies? No, no, Senator. The Soviet Union. Union, says the senior senator from South Somewhere. Union? Them's fighting words, son. And here the senator continues his commentary on white supremacy, the senator's voice harmonizing nicely with an ex-prime minister's, whose thoughts on the God-given superiority of those who speak English mingle in turn with the defense plea of an ex-field marshal of another master race. Why are the Nazis grinning so broadly in their little box? Hitler's hope is coming true. That's why his enemies are divided. What does it matter who split the atom if the Allies are split? The German bulwark against Bolshevism may be reared again. Oh, yes. There's good news in Nuremberg tonight. America is speaking loudly and carrying a very small stick. We told off Franco and gave Perón a piece of our mind. Sure, Franco and Perón, they were the friends of Hitler. We blurted it right out. Franco and Perón are fascists. So there. Then what? Franco didn't quit, although we asked him to. Perón didn't even blush. He's been too busy winning an election. Our military might in Europe is less than half of what it was last summer. Morale is low, and the army is letting it be known that we aren't ready to do any bluffing, not on big terms. Our bluff might be called. Won't take us a whole year, says the army in the papers today, to regain a position in Europe which would justify that thing called, quote, a strong foreign policy, unquote. Dear Senator Tough Talker, may I ask you a question, sir? Is this the time, then, to persuade Russia that there's no other choice for Russia but to go to war with us? Well, I hear the word appeasement. Am I in favor of appeasing Russia just because we aren't prepared for war? Funny thing. Those who warn us most these days against appeasement were the most guilty of appeasement in Munich, in Manchuko, and in Madrid. Well, sir, I'm not in favor of going to war, Period. Nobody in his right mind can be in favor of going to war unprepared. If the tough, tough talkers are right, if the way to keep the peace is to threaten war for the love of logic, let's be sure about who is threatened and who is doing the threatening. Just growling, you better look out, that gun is loaded, isn't very tough talk if you aren't holding the gun. If the gun is pointed at you, the tough talk adds up to a plea for mercy. Let's get the draw on Russia before we shoot it out. Meanwhile, it's shut up. If those who are saying war's got to come mean exactly that, they should be strong and silent. But look at them, they're noisy and weak. Mind, there's no pushover like your flabby cynic. He encourages the battle, but he's the last to fight and the first to fall. Your flabby optimist denies the possibility of war. Your flabby cynic denies the possibility of peace. Unlike the optimist, he can't even be surprised into action. He is prepared for everything except victory. Having surrendered to war, he has already surrendered to the enemy. The cynic must be doubly smart and doubly strong because he has no faith to light his way in the world. Morally blind, he can only prevail by blinding his adversary. Choose the cynic's way and we must keep that choice a secret. boast of that choice and we announce our own defeat. Oh no, we must lay our traps in the nighttime, and our words must be sugar. Excuse me, please. Excuse the fancy pants phrasing. I've been studying Churchill too hard for the good of this program. Live a thousand years, of course. I won't hammer out one line like his. The most casual Churchill sentence, you know, rings like a bronze bell. And he seems to be speaking for the ages, even when he's talking through his hat. I've been living with his recent sloganeering because I want to fight it. The high style, of course, can't be imitated, but the theater and thunder of it is contagious. So if I break out in another rash of purple, blame a mighty orator and bear with a freshman editorialist. What I want to say in plain radio American is this... Mr. Winston Churchill has been talking about war. This very public, private citizen has been campaigning in America. He's made his holiday as politically significant as the massing of troops at a border. War, he says, is neither imminent nor inevitable, but he says this in a kind of postscript, and he leaves us in a kind of daze. Maybe you think he's opened our eyes and we're just blinking in the sudden glare of reality. Maybe you think he dealt a body blow to the United Nations organization. Whatever you think, I'm pretty sure that World War III doesn't seem any further away since Mr. Churchill came to our shores for a rescuer. The patchings up and the qualifications of the little lecture at the Waldorf are all weighed in, and the substance of Mr. Churchill's message still stands as a plea for immediate Anglo-American alliance. Nothing official, of course. We believe in the UNO. Nothing military, of course. We believe in the UNO. Nothing antagonistic to Russia. Not for a minute. We believe in the UNO. War? We aren't necessarily going to have to go to war. Not war, perhaps not right away, perhaps, but war, 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 war. War. Unless the English-speaking world makes the world safe for the English-speaking world. The bright hope being that England and America can scare Russia into temporary submission... But Mr. Churchill has not given his eloquence to the obvious notion that we have no reason to fight Russia at all. And the ex-Prime Minister's feelings for the unhappy masses in Russia do not seem to extend to the unhappy masses of the British Empire. The great charters drafted and signed on the Atlantic and at San Francisco make suffrage and individual liberty in Russia a concern of the entire world community. But India, it seems, India is none of our business. Most assuredly, says Mr. Churchill, India is none of Russia's business. He well knows that Russia doesn't agree with him. He well knows the words of the Communist Manifesto, quote, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, unquote. He well knows that Russia has something better than slavery to offer the slave peoples of the British Empire. He does not know or will not offer a competitive way out for that imprisoned people. Making no offer... Of an alternate solution, Churchill sees no final choice for the world but World War, the destruction of the British Empire, or the destruction of the Soviet Union. In his desperation, he forgets the bomb, forgets that such a contest may well mean the destruction of the living earth. And this is the way of the cynic, the ultimate obscenity. I've said that the cynic must be doubly strong, that to prevail the cynicism and the strength must be most secret. Well, then why does Churchill declare himself so candidly? Has he gone dotty? Be very sure of it. Churchill is no fool. Be just as sure that he came here not as a friendly prophet with a word of warning, but as a frightened Tory with his back to the wall. Britain can make world war only with the help of America. So, Churchill says, only Britain and America can make world peace. Now, that sounds almost like sense. But listen carefully. Only Britain and America can make world peace. That's not sense. It's nonsense. And Churchill knows it, so he keeps repeating piously the words UNO, UNO. But UNO means United Nations Organization. It doesn't mean the English-speaking nations united against Russia. Churchill hopes it does, and maybe Stalin thinks it does now. If so, that bomb you heard ticking may be timed for tomorrow. May be keeping its dreadful rendezvous in, shall we say, Turkey. Turkey. A man called Franklin Roosevelt believed America and Russia could be friends in a friendly world. But Franklin Roosevelt sleeps in a garden in Hyde Park. Churchill paid a visit to that garden last week on his way to dinner with Dewey. The newspapers ran the picture. An arresting tableau it was, the great man at the great man's grave. The co-author of the Atlantic Charter, hatless and heedless. A great deal more dead than the friend he mourned. Miss Churchill, you hear that? Hear it, Mr. Stalin, Mr. Truman, gentlemen in high authority, listen. The bomb. The new model with a special atomic attachment, the time bomb. Ticking the time away, ticking out our last few mortal moments. I'm not trying to scare you. Most of us private citizens are more scared than you are. The men of science, the men who made the bomb, they're the most frightened of all. They know about the new atomic feature, the 1946 improvement. They know... What it means the congressmen are frightened, so they want to give the final power over the atom to the army. You know, in a way, that's just as frightening as the atom bomb itself. The power has to stay with us, the people. Has to grow in us, the people. We can make a garden of this earth of ours. Another Eden. Or bequeath our children to the pit, to the flames to unmarked graves in the apathetic silences of burning gas. Now the time allotted to this broadcast has run its course, so I turn off the sound effects, wish it were as easy as that to stop the thing it stands for. I can't. You can't. But we can. Well, I've been asking those of you who've been interested to listen, to write me your own thoughts, your own opinions, your own ideas, and I've been getting some wonderful letters, and to show my appreciation, I've been sending you a radio for every letter I use on this program. Mrs. M. W. Duran of Fairfax, California, wrote me asking about World War III. And this broadcast was a try at answering some of her questions. A try. My dear Mrs. Deren, I hope the radio you're getting will bring you news with... Better answers than idea hazard today. Until the better answers and the better news, I remain as always obediently yours. The American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations has just brought you the personal, individual news commentary of Orson Welles. Be sure to listen again over many of these same stations next Sunday at the same time to Orson Welles. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.